And the stakes here are the stakes of whether or not there is this narrative. The stakes here are, are whether or not I can make this claim to an identity that extends beyond the present moment and that is historical. And then I can make this claim as part of a community whose members have often been made into ghosts. I, I have no answers yet. <laughs> um, and I hope I never do to some extent, right? Like I think nonfiction is about the living with and the working through. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Alex Marzano Lesnovich is the author of The Fact of a Body, A Murder and a Memoir, which is about a case that they came across as a young lawyer, the case of Ricky Langley, who murdered a young boy in Louisiana. As Alex investigates this particular case, they also find themselves reconsidering their own childhood and family stories, particularly their childhood abuse at the hands of their grandfather. The book won Guardian Best Book of the Year, Lambda Literary Award, Chautauqua Prize, so many other prizes. Um, but what we got to talk about today was what they've been writing and thinking about since The Fact of a Body. After that book's publication, Alex came out as trans, which they've written about for Harper's, The New York Times, and lots of other places. And in the last few years, they've been working on a book called Both and Neither, a book they call Transgender and Transgenre. We sat down to talk about that and the haircut that set them on the path to writing it. Here's Alex Marzano Lesnovich. After kind of a lifetime of thinking about it and thinking it wasn't an option and all this, um, I cut my hair. And my hair had always been really long. And I cut it off. And that was uh, like the immediate catalyst to becoming out as trans. But also as something that, as a move, as a gesture that fundamentally then affected the way the people in the world or people in the world around me read me. Um, and that uh, made being closeted be not an option in a way that it had been um, for so many years. Uh, certain kinds of closetings were still possible, certain kinds were not. Uh, it just changed the way that people read me, it changed the way people interacted with me. Um, and it meant that I had to move through space differently because people interacted with me differently, but it also meant that I had to think about the way that I was read differently in different spaces immediately. Um, and could walk through my day. In fact, I, I did this in Australia. Uh, so I was in the, on the other side of the world from where I live. Um, and I was on book tour. I remember leaving that, leaving the barbershop. And it, just in that day alone, I was gendered by people as male and I was gendered by people as female. And it flipped really, really quickly. It was like I was walking down the street and I'd be, sir, ma'am, sir, ma'am, sir, ma'am. And I remember that not only the realization that I was now going to be interacting with this continuously, but also the interaction of uh, the experience, like realizing this layer of what we read onto the world that was about to become an even more obvious part of my reality was going to be layered over with this like gauze of how we interpret, how we see. And I think that as a nonfiction writer, that like sent me into thinking about how I write nonfiction because. Well, because what do you think about fact, right? And so um, it made me think about kind of the shadow narrative, like what exists behind the narrative, what exists behind facts, how much how much of an interpretation that plays a role, which I had written so much in my first book about, um, but somehow it amplified everything. 
And it also made going back kind of impossible. <laughs> like I, I could, I could no longer even pretend if there ever was a desire to, um, that a fact was something simple, separate from interpretation and uh, separate, separate maybe from like social construction and the way we sort of author things collectively. Can I back you up and ask you about, I don't know, the history of your hair? You said you'd been thinking about it for a long, long time. Yeah, so um, I wrote about this later in, a, in an essay for Harper's called Body Language that was then um, in Best American Essays. Well, when I was eight, I remember watching this video um, of myself uh, in the musical South Pacific, which, my, which an after-school program I was in had put on. And I was considered a girl, and there weren't enough uh, boys in the program to play the parts of all the sailors in the show. And so I was tall. Uh, and uh, they said I could play a boy. And so I was able to dress in a way just that I had never had. I, I had this long, long, long curly hair. At that point, it was um, down to my butt, actually. <laughs> And so it was just this huge mass of hair. Like all these other pictures for me at the time are like this tiny face and this cloud of dark hair. Um, and it was curlier than it is now. And it, it was just kind of, it tended to frizz. And so it was this big cloud. Um, and it was kind of, to some extent, it was like a thing I wrestled with, right? I have this long this memory always of hairbrushes getting caught in it and it just being super painful. Um, but it was also this thing that became a mirror or an avatar for my body. So um, I would always put it in a ponytail, but then I would uh, leave the ponytail for like a week. Um, so it would form these giant, giant, giant knots. Um, and part of that was just like, I really couldn't interact with my body or with what I looked like or think about my physical manifestation in the world. Um, I also wrote about this in the essay, but uh, when I was a kid, I remember being asked to draw a self-portrait and, um, this was just an art class in elementary school. And I remember, you know, I drew, I, I drew, and then I remember the shock I felt when I looked at other people's drawings because they had drawn like the representation of a person and I had drawn a swirl. Like I, I couldn't draw what I looked like. Anymore. I would not have been able to even engage with the idea of what I looked like. Uh, that was so disorienting. Um, and it seemed natural to me that if you were going to draw a self-portrait, you would draw what was in your mind. Um, so in that way, it was a swirl with all these like images of things that I thought about in it. Um, but I remember like that it almost was like a shock or a rupture that someone else knew what they looked like. And then so I was used to this feeling of, of rupture. I was used to this feeling of um alienation i was used to like ignoring this mass of my hair um and i i saw that video and i recognized the person in it like the, the person dressed as a boy and my mother my mother who is extremely traditionally feminine um I, i've never known her even like to to an amplified extent like i've never known her to do her own hair she has had weekly standing beauty parlor appointments um for as long as I've known her, she's had weekly manicures as long as I've known her. Um, it, it is this like performance of them in me that is not to her mind a performance, understandably. For her to then see me on screen, I remember that she like 
there was a silence in the room and she, she said, you make a good looking boy. And I was like, inside me, I was like, I know. <laughs> um, it was like this little high five from the inside me. Um, and I knew enough not to say that out loud. But I also understood that that was right because I wasn't a girl. Like, I, I remember the rightness of what she said, where I was just like, yep, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and so the hair kind of became this avatar space for that, or like this this thing that I uh, projected it onto. Um, and as I got older and became more conversant internally with uh, my gender identity, because I, I identify as trans, non-binary, and specifically as trans mask, um, I would think about cutting off my hair and I would think, oh no, I can't. It's curly. It's going to do like the little orphan Annie thing. Um, Because at one point as a kid, I had cut my hair off and it had done the little orphan Annie thing and that was really unpleasant. (laughs) In an elementary school setting, that was just a middle school setting. That that was just miserable. Um, And I felt like doubly trapped by my body. Like it wasn't just, and it's funny because I don't feel trapped in my body at all now, but I I did then. And uh, I felt doubly trapped in my body in the way that I I felt like I was trans, but I was being read as a girl. But then also I I felt, I internalized this idea somehow that I couldn't come out as trans and I couldn't make steps, take steps um, to look more in the way I perceived myself to want to look not that I did want to look um, because my body was like the wrong kind of body for it I had big hips I had my mother's hips um, and I had this curly hair and I and I lived that way for so many years um, and it wasn't until I was on the other side of the world and a, a student who knew me well later said to me, like, of course, you cut it off there. You're always more yourself when you're far away from home. Um, she'd known me for years and she was, she was right. Uh, but that made sense to me. But then it was also this element of, um, well, my first book was a memoir and I was on tour for the memoir. And so I was constantly telling people stories from my life, always aware that I was hiding another big story from my life. Always aware that I was sort of presenting myself as an authentic version of myself, but that I was actually keeping this big part of myself deeply hidden. Um, so cutting the hair was kind of like a stepping through. It was stepping through of so many things, right? It was a stepping through a threshold in that way. But like I said, it also sort of slowly, slowly, slowly made me start to interrogate what I thought of as fact or what I thought of as settled or how narrative worked, even how much it was individually asserted and how much it was collectively constructed. Um, But also whether there was a way to eventually um, make a narrative on the page that would allow for dreams, wishes, hopes, imagining ghosts, maybe to also be true alongside the fact like alongside maybe something that we might call a material fact. Um, and even there, I'm like interrogating what I say, because I'm like, I don't want to call, I don't want to call dreams, which is memory is not facts. 
right? I don't want to call it ghosts, not bugs. Um, but I think it just was a threshold into embracing how layered my perception of life is and then trying to figure out, okay, well, if all I have is one line at a time on the page, all I have is like black ink, white paper, and the reader's ability to take in one word at a time, one line at a time, how do I try to capture that layered nature? I just kind of want to ask you about that day, the day you cut your hair. What was that day like? Oh, I was so scared. I have this picture of myself from right before I went in. Um, and it's so hard to look at now because I was so uncomfortable. And I think I told only two people maybe what I was going to do. I told only two close friends, but um, really nobody else. And uh, I had left a relationship. Uh, right before then, like a partner, and you know, you're not supposed to cut your hair right after a breakup. Right, that's, right. The, that's against the rules. That's the rule. <laughs> but in this case, it was more like I never would have, um, for fear of her response. And I knew that, and so I felt like I could break the rule because, in some sense, it was being true to a deeper, uh, deeper rule, a deeper truth. Um, and I went in and. Like it, what's funny about it now, partially, is just like it wasn't a good haircut. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> that first haircut was actually really bad. I don't know what she was thinking, but she like again, I have this really curly hair, but she like shaved part of it real close. Like I love a tight fade. That was great, but um, it was more like a there was no fade element. It was just like shaved really tight, and then this giant mass of like curls that weren't shaped. And so it, it was a really bad haircut, but, um, but God, it felt liberating. It felt amazing. It felt wonderful. I was terrified. I was was shaking afterwards and it also felt exhilarating. And I went to, um, well, the first thing I did was I went to a men's clothing shop that was down the street. I was just kind of in a daze. I heard about this in the essay too. I read about this whole day in the essay, many, much of the day in the essay. Um, I went into this clothing shop just totally in a daze. And it was like, um, I've had a couple of like pretty woman moments when it comes to shopping for uh, men's clothing, but in like clothing considered men's clothing. Um, but in this, this was definitely one of them uh, because they seemed to quickly understand that it was a really important day. Um, and I finally did say, yeah, I just, I just cut my hair off. And they were so helpful. Um, and I left with like uh, just an extraordinary amount of clothing, an entirely new wardrobe. I did not have the money to do this. And I so deeply did not care. Um, I just knew that this was what I needed to do in that moment. And uh, one of the things I bought was like they had just one one item on clearance that was exactly in my size and on clearance. And it was a, a black sequin tuxedo, but a really, really <sighs> nice one. 
And so I still have that and wear it a shocking amount, like a shocking amount. If, you, if anyone listening to this, you know, if you buy the, the sequin tuxedo, opportunities will present themselves. Uh, do it, go for it. Um, and then I, I went to this, this beach and I was so uncomfortable. I just felt like, I mean, I had been out as gay for years and yet I'd always, there was like, I was red as femme before that. And femme erasure is a really big thing. And I was red as femme, I think, because of my hair, even when I was wearing a tie. Um, and so people never took it as a given, even when I was wearing a tie, because I was like, I'm going to make you see. No, they didn't see um, uh, that I was gay, I was queer. And uh, suddenly some, it seemed like something had flipped and I was instantly read that way. Um, and by some people, I was instantly read um, as trans or instantly read. Like, it just people read me all sorts of different ways. Many of them um, read me immediately as a guy, like just lots of different things. But I remember getting an ice cream cone because I love ice cream. It's good comfort food, right? And I was like very shaky, walking around, feeling like I had no skin, feeling just totally exposed. Um, and I, was, I wasn't paying attention to anything. I was just like licking the ice cream cone and watching this beautiful landscape. So I guess I was paying attention to that because um, Australia has these like stunning, stunning, stunning landscapes. And I looked up mid lick and realized this woman was staring at me and I, she saw me saw her and she just turned beet red <laughs> and it was so clearly like a very charged moment um and that was nice i was like oh this is gonna be fun i've mostly been thinking about how scary this is going to be but being red as myself and being able to like flirt with people as myself is also going to be fun. And I'm so grateful to her because like, it was such a, uh, a little moment, not just of acceptance, but of joy. And uh, that was just like a time when I needed that. Yeah. Was one of the things you were afraid of on that day or in general, the way that it was going to feel to be looked at or to yes. be, to have, to have, the way you were looked at by other people changed so dramatically? Oh, absolutely. I was so used to not wanting to be looked at or wanting to control um, how I was looked at. So, I mean, I was, I was a theater kid um, and I did I performed as a drag king for a while um, when I was older, when I was like in my 20s. Um, and I love being looked at as long as I get to play a role. As long as like it is controlled and I am wearing a costume or something that I can consider a costume. Um, and so I, I liked being looked at in that realm. And I just hated being looked at in life, in day-to-day -day life. In part because it is so hard in that moment to sort of step in what's into, into what someone else might see. Wait, say, say more about that. What do you mean? I mean, I think we walk down the street and so often without even thinking about it, we sort the people we pass into genders. Mm -hmm. It's just automatic, right? Like this is what, what's one of the first things you see when you look at someone, the first thing you think is you, you think, what is their gender? I suspect this is a pretty universal experience. 
um, and something that can be hard to unlearn or hard to untrain. Um, but the knowledge of that, the experience of that, even my own experience of doing that with others, just when I see someone, like I, I think it's just what we read. Um, it was so painful to think about that being done on me. It still is really hard for me to think about that being done on me. Um, and so presented with that, that fundamental like first move, I, I would prefer not to be seen is how I felt then. And then, of course, like the kind of writing I do, non creative nonfiction that includes strong, I mean, at least right now, my projects have involved strong personal elements, is to some extent all about being willing to be seen, being willing to offer a narrative drawn from life, a narrative drawn from the body, a representation of the body to be seen. So I think existing in that uneasy space is, um, a big part of what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which sort of brings us back to what you were saying earlier about how this experience of deciding to be seen in the world as yourself, as you understand yourself to be, completely changed your relationship to... I. It's interesting that you, you phrase it or thought of it as this reorientation to subjectivity and to fact because it seems like maybe you can maybe we can talk a little bit about your first book it seems like the question of the subjectivity of a fact was already something that was so so much on your mind deeply and that's what the book was about absolutely although it isn't what i thought it was about when i started working on it you know i'm a big believer in the idea that the book teaches you what it's about the book teaches you how to write it and the book teaches you what it's about um and ultimately, yes, like I ended up there. But I ended up there for elements outside myself, right? I ended up there for like the legal system and families. But there was still this fundamental anxiety about how it would be understood journalistically and wanting to, you know, it is really important to me to show where I got all the information in the book from, um, to argue that what is there is true um there are source notes in the back of the book and that's because so much of what i was talking about was contested so much of what i was talking about had been erased or denied and so that's also true with what i'm working on now but there's like this liminal additional layer that i'm now interested in that i didn't that i think the threshold here moment was sort of part of is like what if the dreams, the wishes, the imaginings are also their own kind of true. What if they're where the hauntings in life show up, like the things that we erase and deny that come back to haunt us, uh, that historically come back to haunt us. What if where they show up is this kind of liminal layer? And if so, isn't that also true? I have no idea if this is coming through. I'm going to have to write a whole book about it, is the thing to explain what I mean.
I've been reading uh, Avery Gordon's brilliant book, Ghostly Matters, which it's funny. I've had it for years. I'm only reading it now. Um, and in some sense, I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to read it. But also, this is the perfect moment to read it. Gordon's book basically argues that one way to think about ghosts and one way to think about hauntings um, is just as the man is, is as the manifestation of historical erasures, historical silencing. Um, that these uh, acts of erasure, these acts of disappearance, these acts of suppression show up in the form of hauntings, which in itself is, you know, maybe not a radical idea. That's that's kind of why we have ghosts something unresolved, something suppressed. But I keep thinking about the way she argues that the hauntings themselves are also true, that they are pushing to the surface or pushing to into a liminal space at least, something that is just as true as the asserted narrative, just as true as what remains after the erasure, that in a sense, the haunting constitutes the completion I don't know if she would put it that way, um, but I think for myself, I'm putting it that way. Where were the ghosts or the hauntings in this transformation that you experienced with your hair, or were there not any? Am I am I miss oh, understanding are. that metaphor? No, there absolutely are because what is it in me that knew that this was how to be recognized and seen? Whose ghost am I invoking? Whose ghost am I calling forth when I engage in this kind of like queer signaling? Right? I'm, I'm, when I, when engaging in queer signaling or engaging in this kind of desire to be visible as who I am and the, the signals that I use for that, the language that I use for that, the signifiers that I call forth for that, that language, that discourse, is historical and has behind it the ghosts of a whole lot of dead people and people who were erased and oppressed. And so when I cut my hair, I am in some ways calling forth like the ghost of Joseph Lobdell, who was, who was someone who um, was imprisoned for, for, well, was imprisoned in a mental institution uh, for who he was and, and, and died there. Um, then it's a longer story, <laughs> more complicated, but it's a really horrific story and what happened to him, um, including, uh, the sort of the contest that happens over his identity now, um, because there's at least one book that describes him in ways that are really damaging and erase. Um, but when one looks at like his picture and that signifying move that he once did of cutting off his hair. I feel like the move I make now is one that is deeply laden with his ghost, with his hauntings, that is conversant with that community, with a community of ghosts. Mm. Oh, I love that. It's a way of talking to the, the child, the person you were at the dinner table when your mother said, you look, I forget what the line was. You look pretty good as a boy or something like that. Yeah, like, it's a, a good looking boy. Yeah, you make absolutely. a good looking boy. It's like a way of calling that person into the present too. Completely. And thank you for that insight. Yeah, it absolutely is. 
I use she, her pronouns to talk about that kid, but I feel like it is for her to some extent. It's funny. The first book I, I, I maybe have to some extent, I'm always, at least right now, I'm often writing to her, not, not, not in the essays I've written for the most part, but both book projects. You know, when I was working on the fact of a body and I was um, struggling to say what I needed to say, um, struggling to write it. And it, it's so hard sometimes to say what you mean. And it, it can take uh, not just a lot of thinking, but um, a lot of willingness to stand forth on a, on a tree limb. When that book came out, um, I sometimes would joke that I, what I did for a living was I stood on tree limbs. <laughs> um, that's what it felt like, right? And so that move, you know, I, I, I remember being at a residency. Actually, it was the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and I was just struggling to write. And I wrote on a note card, um, tell the story she couldn't, and pinned it to my wall. I was like, all right, that's who I'm responsible to really ultimately. Um, and I don't think that's going to be the mission for every book. I certainly hope not. And I don't even think it's the mission for as much of this current book as it was for that one. Um, because I think in this one, um, I'm more accountable to my ghosts, but she is one of those ghosts. Absolutely. Hmm. I guess I'm curious to know how she's keeping you different kinds of company now in your current work. I feel like this is about everything after her. This one isn't just her. It's, it's a whole community. It's a whole bunch of things I realized only after I was her. Um, whereas the first one, the first book is deeply about, I mean, yes, a lot of the book takes place when I'm an adult, but it is deeply about everything she couldn't say, everything she wasn't allowed to say. Um, and this book is sort of after. There's a question that I want to ask or to bring us back to that has to do with um, the multivalence of truth and the sort of instability of the fact that that became clearer to you as you realized that yourself as a fact in the world became more more subjectively experienced after you cut your hair? I guess I have trouble with that word subjective, even though I know it's true, right? Because I want to push back against it. I want to say, no, no, this is not only the subjective truth, this is also the objective truth, right? Um, that who somebody is, they must be believed on. And at the same time, you know, psychologically, right, we're all always kind of lying to ourselves. We are not our, our, we are not our most reliable narrators in so many ways. But that argument like that that element then taken to like a medicalized or institutionalized version has been used to deny the existence of trans people forever so in terms of what made me start to think about and question this and think about how to how to account for a narrative how to account for a record that was incomplete and what might be the missing parts that would complete it um i would say that i was doing all this reading about people in history about trans folks and people we would now call trans in history and was so frustrated by these constant erasures and denials of who they were and was thinking about um, 
the way I had to read the record uh, in order to piece together signifiers of who they were um, in their own terms. And I, I think Jen Chaplin's uh, first book is about this so beautifully. Um, my, my Autobiography of Carson the Colors, I think is the title. It's, it's a brilliant book and it's deeply about, as she calls it, like reading queerly. Um, but what I started to think was, oh God, what would happen if someone looked at the record of my life? Because at that point, everything I had left behind would have erased who I was. Heck, I had a whole book with my previous name on the cover that never once mentioned it. And it was called a memoir, story of my life, right? Um, so I had inadvertently, in trying to keep myself safe, but also in just in revealing like what I was ready to at any given time. I don't think anyone's any, uh, under any obligation to reveal everything. And I do always think that a memoir is like a story of the life. It is not the story of the life. Um, but I had inadvertently created a narrative that further erased and further denied myself. I don't just mean the book. I just mean every bit of documentation about my life. And to some extent, stepping through that threshold was the first part of intervening in that narrative. But then also that made me try to think about, okay, well, if I can see that in my own life, then why would I want to hew to rules about nonfiction that would reproduce that kind of silencing in somebody else's. And it's, it's tricky, right? Because it's like, on the one hand, you can if you insist that you know what that shadow narrative is, you're essentially talking right over the person. And you're also erasing and silencing them. But if you pretend that there is no shadow narrative and a shadow narrative doesn't exist, you are again, erasing and silencing the person. So how do I hold that liminal space? And to me, I guess that liminal space is what I mean by hauntings or ghosts. Is there something there that we can't access? There's something there that lingers. There's something there that isn't captured. There's something there that is transmitted. Historically, yes, but not in the history that we so often think about when we say the word history. And, and for me, it's can I write nonfiction that that, that that represents that. Just to sort of circle back and close the loop, um, when I was saying, when I used the word subjective, and I'm glad you sort of picked that up and and pushed back against it, what I was what I was trying to indicate was not that you were realizing that identity is subjective, but rather that in the experience of walking down the street and being called sir, ma'am, sir, ma'am, in such quick alternation, realizing that your, um, the way you were going to be perceived in the world was going to be subject or, you know, sub subject to, um, the, the sort of the, unstable and shifting perceptions of other people which which is very different than i think as you pointed out every different saying than saying that who you were was subjective but rather that it's about um what is what is true what is telegraphed what is received and also what is recorded and also that who we are is partially socially constructed yeah Right? Gender isn't just individually 
asserted, it is also culturally constructed for the individual. And that means it matters whether your culture has a narrative for who you are. It matters what, what, what narrative your culture puts on you. And so for me, coming out as genderqueer, well, what happens when I know who I am, but my culture doesn't have a narrative for it? Which is in some ways where this book I'm working on both and neither came from. Like, can I tell myself a missing narrative? Can I tell myself a narrative of what it means and has meant historically in my culture to identify beyond the binary? Because right now we so often, too often, way too often pretend that it's new. Right. We know it's not new. <laughs> so, so where's that missing narrative? Like, why don't we have some, some sense of what that word means, has meant, et cetera? I'm so interested in the way that you feel like imagination could or should, or maybe shouldn't play a part in the reconnection with these ghosts, you know, to want to obviously that, that liminal space you're describing where you don't want to participate in the erasure of somebody because of what wasn't recorded. And yet you don't want to participate in their erasure by somehow writing over them where does where does imagination and sort of keeping imaginary company come in to a project and like that that's the only way to do it right is to keep imaginary company i like that phrase um and it's also so damn tricky because of the pitfalls that you just listed um but like isn't that the kind of stuff we write a book about <laughs> <laughs> if you can solve it quickly, solve it quickly. If you can't solve it quickly, write a 300-page book about it. Um, I, I think that's a big part of what I am writing about. Is, is like, on the one hand, if I don't do this, I have no history. If I don't say I know this crucial thing about who these people were, I don't have a history and I'm complicit in my own erasure as well as in their erasure. And on the other hand, Obviously, it is hubristic and ahistorical to say, oh, yeah, this language totally applies. Because this language doesn't apply. They didn't have this language. Language is contextualized by its time period. But there's still something there. And, and, and. So I'm interested in like irresolvable tensions. I'm interested in the push and pull of that. And I'm also honestly interested in the need because the stakes here. The stakes here are the stakes of whether or not there is this narrative. The stakes here are, are whether or not I can make this claim to an identity that extends beyond the present moment and that is historical. And then I can make this claim as part of a community whose members have often been made into ghosts. I, I have no answers yet. <laughs> um, and I hope I never do to some extent, right? Like I think nonfiction is about the living with and the working through. Um, I really like where my first book ended up. I believe in that book. I believe in where it went. And also, would I write it differently now? Yeah, probably, because it was written by, to some extent, a different person. But it's not lost on me that without giving any spoilers, like that book ends in a place of, um, for lack of a better phrase, both and neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> To some extent, both and neither is the conclusion of that book. And it's also the title and reason for being of this one. Um, I like these irresolvable tensions. I think to some extent, for me, they are what the genre is about. 
So some people sort of set out to write books, even thorny, complicated, liminal books, um, with an idea that in the book there will be an answer to the question, or that in the book there will be some fundamental shift. And they know the book, they know that they've done it because they have arrived at that place or they've answered that question. How do you think you'll know when you're on the other side of this book? What what is arrival? Do you know yet what arrival will will feel like or will look like or what you're what you're aiming toward? Yeah, I think it'll look like the deadliner, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I facetious but true. Um yeah, I mean I I would not everything I just said to you about this liminality, about um the way the liminality like I didn't really get into how the liminality is inscribed on the structure of the book or its mechanics. Um, but everything that I understand about that, I did not understand about it just a couple of months ago. Um, like I said before, the book always teaches you what it's about. The book always teaches you how to write it. And I knew before what the final scene of the book was, which I'm obviously not going to say. Um, and I know right now that that's not the final scene. There, there, there's no way. Um, and I like that. I think it's interesting uh, when things evolve in the doing. Um, this book is so um, contemporary in a way, and I don't mean because it t- touches contemporary subjects, although it does, um, but because I'm being called to work it through on the page. And there's an enormous amount of energy in that, I think. And there's an enormous amount of risk. And, you know, with my first book, I didn't really understand that that was what I was doing. It was what ended up being necessary. Um, the The final pages of the book are what I was, you know, sort of where I was emotionally that day. And I arrived at that place in the writing of them. And that was how I knew it was done. I, I just felt it. I, I, re- I remember exactly when I wrote um, the final words of that book. It was actually at McDowell, the McDowell, uh, McDowell residency. Um, and I, I was shaking as I wrote that final scene because I knew that this was what I had spent years coming to. That this was, this was like the scene. This was the moment. This was why I had written the whole book. Um, and I haven't, I haven't had that moment yet. Uh, but thank God I haven't had that moment yet. <laughs> I'm not ready for that moment yet. Um, but I know it's coming. I mean, I, I can feel all the shifting. I can feel the way um, the ghosts I spent so much time now hanging out with um, are making themselves known in different ways. Uh, and the way I'm, I'm learning something new about them kind of every day. Um and I understood something crucial about Gerd Catter yesterday that I, I haven't understood before, but that I deeply believe to be true. And so at some point, they will settle down and we will, we will arrive wherever we are going together, but I, I really think we're going there together. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshenwood of Arthur Moon. 
Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.